Welcome listeners to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. This is a podcast on high performance. It will be presented by myself, David Clancy, and my two co-hosts, Connor Gavin and Kieran Dunn. What we're striving to achieve here is figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why are they successful. Rate and review, share with your friends, but most importantly, enjoy. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 37. Today we spoke to Jesse Barr, Olympian hurdler, PhD researcher, and sports psychologist in the Irish Institute of Sport. We talked about the complex relationship between body and mind, mental health in athletes, and the trials and tribulations of competing in track and field. Listen out for Jesse talk about the yips, thoughts on recent doping scandals in athletics, and whether the physical or mental grind is more difficult. This is a great episode for any aspiring athlete or person who wants to understand what it takes to make it in the field of high performance. If you'd like more information on this episode or any of our others, check out our website on www.sleepyperformrepeat.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review, but most importantly, listen and enjoy. Welcome everyone to another episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Connor and myself are very much looking forward to having Jesse Barr shed light on her career and what she's doing today. So I'm going to hand over to Connor to give a little bit of a background into Jesse. So thanks a million, Jesse, for coming in to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. So uh, Jesse is an accredited sports and performance psychologist out with the Sport Ireland Institute. She's also completing her PhD in sports psychology down in UL at the moment. Completing, not completed. She, completing, she yeah. <laughs> um, she's also a European Championship finalist and also an Olympian from London 2012. And probably most impressively of all, she's a day showman. So, That's it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so how is life with you today, Jesse? What's going on with yourself? Things are good. As you can see, I'm here. Well, obviously, it's not a visual podcast, but I'm here mm-hmm. in my uniform for the Institute. So I'm working today. Um, I do two days a week at the Institute and the other three days, well, three to five days are spent doing my PhD down in Waterford and um, recently moved back there in July. My boyfriend works in the hospital, so we'll be moving around a lot while he trains to be a surgeon. So right. it's a good thing my job is flexible. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So your PhD is on mental health for athletes. Yeah. So I'm looking specifically at like the stigma around mental health within kind of Irish sports. So kind of what are the attitudes within sport between athletes and kind of support services towards yeah. seeking help. So I'm not really looking at prevalence of mental health issues in Irish sport. Yeah. We've, a lot of studies have been done, not many in Ireland, but a lot of studies have been done. I'm more interested in why people are so slow to seek help. What is affecting it? What are the barriers? What are the things that may inhibit people from seeking help? And it is kind of attitudes yeah. that seems to be kind of arising as that issue. So if you were, I'm assuming, multi-year PhD mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the kind of the knowledge and awareness of mental health has obviously increased loads yeah. over the past few years. So even from when you started your PhD to the current day, has there been much of a change in what you found? Yeah, um, there's just, I wouldn't say in terms of the research, stigma is something that's being looked at more and more. I kind of came up with the idea post-masters. Um, I done I did my master's look interviewing athletes who had suffered from depression and I realized that stigma was something that was it was common denominator across all of the athletes I interviewed, that this was the biggest 
issue for them as why they took so long to come forward. One of them had been 20 years before he came forward with his, with his story. So I kind of said, you know, I knew I was going to do a PhD and I kind of saw this as a gap because there was a gap in the research at the time. Now I've taken so long to do the PhD that it's not as big a gap anymore, but there is still a gap and there's not really been a huge amount done in an Irish context. And obviously culturally talking about your emotions, your mental health, we aren't great for it. So I did see that like in terms of athletes or so to speak, Irish people or so to speak, there's definitely going to be you know, there's definitely something to, to research there. So, yeah, it's been interesting. Irish people are notorious for kind of keeping it kind of canned in and not yeah. opening up. Really. Everything's Showing grand. vulnerability. Yeah, it's grand. You yeah. know, it's fine. I'm grand. Asher, I'm grand. You know, Asher. No, that, that's the attitude. And yeah. I, what the, probably the biggest thing I've noticed more in the general public and society rather than in the research, it has been just, I mean, I suppose we're recording this on Mental Health Day. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of apt that we are, I am mm. here today. And just the conversation. You know, people are just talking about it now. Yeah. You know, and people are willing to just normalize it. And that's what I think the biggest thing is it's stigmatized because we don't really have the language to talk about it. So it's illness and it's issues and it's bad, bad, bad. Whereas, you know, sometimes it it could be just it doesn't always have to be a clinical issue that people are suffering with. You know, people have their bad days. People have their symptoms of anxiety, symptoms of depression. And everyone has experienced or suffered or seen someone suffer yeah. from some sort of mental health issue and it's just normalizing that conversation that's what i've really noticed kind okay. of in that public sphere so how is that in kind of experiential knowledge you've had as an athlete mm. and your current research role with you know at the phd how is that impacting on kind of what you're doing on your other two days out in sport ireland or kind of what are you what's that role entail well i suppose the role is very much a performance role so mm. i'm a performance psychologist at the institute but i suppose with my background in sport and with my research i'm very aware of well-being so i'm very much kind of person first athlete second and i mm. kind of that's kind of my philosophy is that a performance is going to be hard it, it, it can come like we have seen the people have suffered from depression anxiety and still be able to perform at the top level but it does make it more difficult so I want to make sure that the person is right and well before we can try and push for performance because what could end up happening is you end up pushing a person out of the sport, push them further towards a mental health issue. So that would has definitely informed the way I work with an athlete. Um, and I suppose having been someone who's had support services myself as an athlete over the years, it has definitely affected how I work. It's not always performance, performance, performance. It's like, how are you? How's your week looking? What have you been up to? I want to know what the lifestyle and what's going on around the sport, because that at the end of the day has an effect on what the performance will look like. So that's kind of how they've kind of informed each other. So if you could go back to a younger self. Yeah. 10 years back down the line Mm. and you could kind of say, geez, I've learned a lot now. You know, Mm -hmm. what, what would you tell a younger self from what you're learning today from PhD from having these these positive constructive um, sessions in the Institute of Sport and meeting people like today. Mm. Well, you know what's funny? I'm working as a sports psychologist and I never actually went to one. Yeah. You know, so I think I would tell my younger self that don't wait until I need the service. Don't wait until I need a psychologist. Treat it like you would prehab. You mm. know, just have check-ins. You know, some athletes I only see every couple of months and it's just a check-in. How are you getting on? How are things? Is there anything I can help you with? And that might be as far as the conversation goes. And I think building it into your kind of wider support team so that it's not one of those things that everything's going wrong and I had a really poor summer and I have one last ditch attempt to qualify for X, Y and Z. I think I should go see a sports psychologist because what happens is there's so much 
expectation and pressure then put on the psychologist to fix me yeah. you know well everyone says that if i go to a sports psychologist that you're what helps you know i read about these people going to a sports psychologist and they they praise them but that's you know from work that goes far back and kind of like a body of work not just a one-off session is going to go away and you're going to be magically ready to compete so i think for my younger self is just treated like i would going to the physio going to do my see my strength and conditioning coach just see it as another part of my team which I didn't at the time. And I and then I suppose I was studying it as well as I was getting older. And I kind of thought, oh, I know it. But like a doctor can't diagnose themselves. Yeah. It'd be very hard for me to say, well, I know all that stuff. I'm studying it. I don't need to go and see someone. And I don't. I know I would have benefited. But you're not really practicing what you're preaching, which is 100%. probably fair to say it's what we do. Say, yeah, yeah, 100%. And I would say yeah. most practitioners would say the same. Yeah. You know, and I now I really recognize different gaps and different times in my career that could really have benefited. So that would be what I tell my younger self and younger athletes is that yeah. just normalize it, build a part of the program. So it's not this thing that when I go to an adult and I'm, you know, I'm already set in my ways and I don't want to ex- engage and accept it. Yeah. As a slight extension of that, mm. looking back on your career now, yeah. which was the bigger grind for you as an athlete, the physical grind or the mental grind? The physical grind. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> 400 meter hurdles is a tough event. Yeah. Um, I suppose mentally, knowing it was going to be hard. Yeah. Mentally, I could get, I, I think I, that was probably somewhere I could have benefited that we were given our programs a month in advance. So we did a month block and then we got our next training program. So I knew a month out when a really tough session was coming. Yeah. And I could be thinking about that for days, weeks, you know, and dreading, dreading, dreading and building this thing up. And it was usually those sessions were the ones that I'd finish and go, that was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Mm. But I had this expectation and the ones that I looked at on paper and thought were going to be easy ended up being harder because I hadn't really put much thought into them. And just even how to prepare myself for that because training sessions are going to be hard, but I mean, it was one of, it was pain at the time and then it was within half an hour it was gone. Yeah. And you felt great. And those endorphins eventually kicked in once I'd finished puking usually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it was the physical grind because I, even when I was younger, my first coach when I was still in school always picked me up as, as being in my comfort zone. Yeah. I didn't want to push myself too hard. I didn't want to hurt. I was kind of scared of the pain. And I suppose you could say that that's definitely mental aspect as well. But it was, it was as soon as I felt the pain, I was going, oh, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable chose the wrong event if I wanted to avoid it but um yeah I think it was it was pretty even but I was I was very motivated I'd always turn up I wouldn't skip sessions I wouldn't try and you know duck out of sessions early but I just dreaded the physical discomfort and that was what I used to dread in races as well because I knew that would come yeah okay I'd like to touch a little bit on on mindset because what I find interesting having worked with some track athletes over the last couple of years you touched on James Allington beforehand yeah and what I find really ultimately amazing about track and field is the fact that you could be training for mm-hmm. years yeah. or months for one event or two events and that's it lights are on you have to perform yeah. for a basketball player you have another chance tomorrow soccer player you have another chance next saturday so how how do you how do you strategize that like how can you say 400 meter hurdles that's the event you know i'm doing i'm doing the diamond leagues so i'm competing in in London Olympics, like the mindset for a track and field is such a different animal. Mm, to it's field tough. Sports. Yeah, and it's really tough. And I've worked in a few field sports and they can't understand, you know, you spend all these months doing, you know, your winter training and all like eight months of training for really what are maybe like that one key race or five big races and then the big, big race. And yeah, it's it's tough. 
Um, I suppose it's the trust you place in your coach that they have prepared you physically that you are going to peak at the right time. Um, and for me, I was very evidence-based, you know, I liked to see there were certain key sessions that I would have done kind of towards the, you know, at the very start of the season. And if I did them well, I knew the season was going to go well. It was just, they were my comp, like there was no real science behind it, but they were the ones that I felt if I get, if I nail these sessions early on and I keep nailing them, you know, they might've been just say a run to the fifth hurdle. And if I got that in the time that I comfortably or a run to her late, I knew I could finish out a race strong. So that that for me, it was putting a lot of trust in the coach to have the physical preparation bit in place. And then I suppose mentally, um, I enjoyed racing. When I was fit and when I was in good shape, I loved it. So I didn't mind whether I was racing at, you know, the heats of the national championships against three other girls to qualify through to the final the next day or whether it was at a European Championships, if I was in shape, I was going to treat every race the same anyway, because with the 400 hurdles, you have to you have to run a certain man, run a certain pace to actually get your stride pattern in. So usually my first 300 meters was pretty much the same, no matter what the level of the race was. And then I could either take the foot off the gas or I, you know, I had people around me that I pushed. So mentally, I kind of treated most races very similarly in that sense. So I didn't let a European final, okay, the European final was scary, but I knew what I was doing going into it. You know, I know what I'm going to do and I know I'm in shape here. When I was, the the summer, this the seasons I would have struggled the most is the seasons where I didn't feel like I was in shape. If I come back from an injury and I, I knew I wasn't fit, then I could stand on any start line and be, you know, nervous, much more nervous, whether it was against absolutely nobody or I was against the top in the world. So, so it's fair to say, Jesse Barr, you would have, been nearly racing against yourself, 100%. not the other three girls. It's like, Mm-mm. if you've done your prep, you're ready, you're prepared. Mm. It's all about what you've done yeah. and what your, your coach that you've trusted in. 100%. I mean, when you when you run in the hurdles, you have something, you have a barrier every 30 metres, 35 metres. So yeah. you don't have a lot of time to think about what's going on around you. Now, I did, I was always aware of the sound. So yeah. I could hear someone else's footsteps, especially in the lane inside me. So mm. I'd be kind of aware, oh, she's jumped the hurdle before me. Oh, come on, come on, come yeah, on. Yeah. But other than that, I was aware of what my stride pattern should feel like. I know what leg is coming next. Okay, I'm feeling good. I'm going to be able to push my 15 strides to the next hurdle. And then I have to drop down. That means I have to up my pace. You know, there was so much kind of internal dialogue going on. You mm. didn't really have time to kind of be aware. So you were racing against yourself. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Slightly controversial one for you. Go on. <laughs> uh, just in light of what's been in the news recently with oh, the, world, yeah. um, mm. the World Championships and Salazar, all that kind of stuff. So you've got a unique position in that you were an athlete and you competed at the very, very highest level. So mm. you were in the, the kind of the mindset of an athlete, but also now you're a performance psychologist. So you can kind of take a step back and see what people are thinking. But mm. what do you think it is that drives people to want to take something they know is an unfair advantage. Yeah. Um, you know what? It's it, it is controversial and I will say I don't condone it and I don't yeah. agree with it, but I understand. Yeah. I do understand why people take it because there is an awful lot of pressure and the people who tend to take it are the ones who are probably at the top or have just fallen from that position. And, you know, if their whole livelihood and their whole life, I mean, I've been very lucky that I was able to step straight into a different career, but there's yeah. an awful lot of people who if they're not performing at the absolute number one, say in the US, there's a conveyor belt of people behind them, they'll be lost, that's their career over, that's all their earnings gone and they have to start from the start and that whole identity is lost. 
So I can understand if someone is offering them something, you probably won't get caught. Yeah. You know, and it's coming from, you know, someone who's maybe a trusted source, which it often does, like Salazar was a coach yeah. of all these athletes. You unfortunately place some trust in them and maybe, you know, uh, and make decisions that you know you shouldn't, but desperation can do, you know, it can, ha it, it can take over for athletes and that pressure to perform and to stay at that top level to keep your funding. Because unfortunately, Things like funding, things like sponsorships, you're told at the start of the season yeah. what you will need to do to maintain your funding, to secure your sponsorship. If you do this, this and this, you'll get a bonus. Yeah. What does that bonus mean? Well, it means I might be able to buy my house, might be able to secure a future for my family. You know, and when, when you look at it from that way, you can understand why people cave. It doesn't mean it's right and yeah. it doesn't mean I would ever do it or I would ever would condone someone doing it. But I do understand how people can fall from. into the trap. Yeah, which is a shame. Yeah. What I'd like to, I'd like to tap into your reservoir. You, you know so many things about practical tools and applications mm. that people could use. We had a very interesting baseball player come in on the podcast recently, okay. Puerto Rican and American background. And he talked about when he'd go into the batter's cage, mm. that he was so relaxed and calm mm. that he was nearly falling asleep Yeah, because he did all the prep. He knew what he was doing. He'd been there. He'd visualized it so he could just relax and let the moment take in. And he was just immersed in that present moment. Yeah. So for you... 400 meter hurdle runner, mm -hmm. training and coaching people going forward. Mm. Kind of what are those kind of go-to practical tools for someone that might be nervous or anxious prior to a big event? I could be playing a basketball game tomorrow, mm. worried, tense because it's a final, and I mightn't play like I know I can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're going into what are you going to say, maybe consider these things. Mm. So I suppose there's a few different ways you could look at it. And I suppose you get to know the athletes. So like I said before, I'm an evidence-based driven athlete. So I get to know a lot of athletes are, you know, they like to see the facts going in. They like to know, be sitting in that call room or sitting in that changing room before they go out to perform, knowing I have done everything I can and here's the evidence to prove it. So what I often do for someone who might be in that kind of nervy headspace, okay, let's make a list. Where is all the proof that you can go out and perform to the best of your abilities, not win, we can't control that, but that you can go out and perform the way you're capable of to, on that day or today or whatever. And we make a list. Simple as, I love yeah. lists. Um, and you make a list and I say, tell me all the reasons you're doing them there too. Yeah. <laughs> tell me all the reasons why you should be confident on the day mm -hmm. that you can perform the way that you can. And we'll go through physical reasons, psychological reasons. Give me all the reasons. And it could be anything from just their training. You know, I, I, I'm really don't push, but I really suggest athletes keep a training diary because you have physical evidence of how their training has gone and not only what they've done, but maybe if a training session hasn't gone well, why? You know, so then at least, okay, well, I had a week where I was just really off, but actually I know why. Well, college was really tough, wasn't sleeping very well. I was trying to get my final year project in. Yeah. So actually, even though in my head, that was such a blip of a week training wise, I know why. So I don't need to worry about it. So they have this body of evidence to look back at and say, you know, our training's actually gone really well, but had they not written it down and taken note, they're probably going to only remember the really good or the really bads and all those in between those sessions that kind of are the more important, the just consistency sessions get forgotten. And um, talking about, have they been there before? Do they know what to do? Do they know what to expect? Have they been performed at this level before? More often than not, they have, you know, so just what is the evidence? Um, you know, are you excited? How do you feel about the idea of it now? Usually it's enjoyment. And I say, well, those and explaining the difference between excitement and nerves and what to expect. So, you know, that's a big thing. 
is providing the evidence and say, look, write that down, put it in your phone, have it somewhere that you can remind yourself when those that nervous brain starts to take over and tries to kind of distract you and focus on all the negatives. Here's fact. This is why you're ready. Um, visualization, as you said, really, really good. You know, and some athletes are really good at it and don't take much practice. Some take a lot of practice. So you kind of figure out what what works for them. Music, you know, whether it's just like if I, w- I worked with a few swimmers and they had this idea that, you know, the Michael Phelps look, the hat of the headphones and the hood yeah. up and the, you know, that kind of strut. Yeah. And what some of them said is it actually made me feel more nervous because it was, and I, so I did workshops with athletes around the, their use of music and how it makes them feel. And if you're already nervous, do you want something with a high tempo that's upping your heartbeat or do you want something more relaxed that mm. physically, because what I say is if you're physically nervous, it's usually because of what's going on in your head, but it can start with your body as well. So mm. physiologically, if your heart rate is raised and your breathing is up, you're putting yourself in that nerve. This is how I know I'm nervous because my heart rate is up. So, oh yeah, and this is a big day. So just kind of ta- tackling a few little areas uh, there, having a really good plan, having a good pre-performance routine, you know, so they know, okay, I've done everything. This is what I usually do. You know, there's loads. You know, it's one of the biggest things is a nervous athlete. How do you help them? I try just loads of different strategies. I find the evidence one is one that they really yeah, respond yeah. to. Really respond to because it's simple. Here's the yeah. bank of work you've already done. Refer to that. Look, you've actually yeah. done plenty yeah. of good work. Mm. And yeah. just having that reminder, because sometimes I think all those facts go out the window and you're safe. For me, standing behind the blocks and all I'm thinking about is all the reasons why this is going to be a crappy race or this is why I might lose or this is what will. And all the reminders and all the things that might happen if I don't perform instead of just thinking, well, I can't do anything about what happens when I get all the way to that finish line. Yeah. But I know all the stuff that I've done to get me to here is good enough to at least get a, a performance that I can be happy with. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So I have this friend. Yes. Definitely not me, but this friend was playing, <laughs> playing a game of pool at the weekend. Okay. First game of pool, potting every ball that came his way, nonstop, yeah. making every shot. Uh-huh. Second game of pool could not make one to save his life. And we're talking about maybe two minutes in the difference. Yeah. So you speak about kind of that nervous athlete preparation. Mm. This friend told me, he was like, is this what the yips is like? Yeah. In the yips. How do you deal with that? Or what's the kind of the, is there research on that at the moment more coming out? Or I haven't done a huge amount of research into yips myself, yeah. but I suppose something like that, what I would ask is, does he play pool regularly? Or was it that fluke? <laughs> you know, probably a fluke. I'd say. Yeah. Well, I suppose then there's no pressure. Yeah. You know, you're going in and it's zero expectation. And that's kind of, you know, that usually is where you have athletes in breakthrough years. You know, you hear of athletes having this massive breakthrough because they weren't on a radar. They didn't have any pressure to perform. They weren't chasing funding. They weren't, you know, or trying to maintain funding, trying to maintain their number one position, trying to maintain all these things. Everything is a bonus when yeah. you're in that position, when there's no, none of that expectation none of, and that perceived expectation, that perceived pressure doesn't seem to be there because... Yeah. They're doing it for the enjoyment. They're doing it because this is something I've practiced, it's something I like to do. And now suddenly, oh, I've just potted all the balls in this. That must mean I'm good. So therefore I should win this next one as well. Yeah. And suddenly it's that self-talk and that negative self-talk that you can get into when that perceived pressure arises, even in something like a game of pool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, suddenly you go, oh, well, I'm going to have to do it again because otherwise everyone's going to think I'm a fluke, yeah. you know? I do it all the time and whenever I play bowling, I'll always yeah. strike, I could strike the first two and think, God, I'm actually really good at pool. Or I'm already good know. at bowling. And then I realize, no, I'm not, that was a fluke. But actually, have I just made, added that expectation and changed my whole 
you know, my whole approach to it then yeah. because of it. Yeah. And mm. the, the flip side then in terms of the, say your golfer, who's obviously incredibly talented and mm. then has triple bogeys, all yeah. that kind of stuff. How do they, what do you suggest they do to kind of get themselves out of a funk when they have to turn it around? Yeah. Well, a lot of it's down to the self-talk yeah. because, so I, I would base a lot of my work around CBT. So, you know, the behavior will follow usually as a result of your emotion your, you know, your feeling in that moment, which is probably nerves or panic, that will come from a thought. Yeah. It doesn't come out of nowhere. An emotion, like, um, you know, emotion can be, is usually kind of created by something that's going on in your head, whether you're aware or not. So a lot of what I would do now, obviously, there in the moment, it's difficult. But if that was someone who was to come to me and say, this has happened before, okay, say, okay, well, tell me physically what was going on. How did you feel in that moment? Okay, well, what were you thinking about and trying to get at their thoughts because usually if you were to dig down deep enough there was a thought going on that maybe they were playing like Rory you know Rory McIlroy when he had that year where he just went through that patch of just not underperforming or just completely missing completely and usually it is it's down to the pressure that perceived pressure and you know I have to do this and you know there's a lot of kind of that pressure language like that I have to I need to I, you know, I should. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, what comes as a result of that? It's like, well, because if I don't, all these bad things will happen. Yeah. And suddenly then they're distracted and they're not focused on just the task at hand. So instead, you know, because I've, I've often done this with athletes and, you know, one simple thing like, well, I have to win this race and it becomes, if I don't, well, I lose my funding. And if I lose my funding, I probably can't stay in this group. And if I can't stay in this group, I'm going to have to move country because there's nowhere else. And I, but I can't afford to move country. So I'll probably have to quit my sport. Mm-hmm. And you're going, oh, oh. This all grew from I have to, you know, so you're trying to change that language that they use to talk to themselves. The exercise I use is like if to just simple reframing, writing down the kind of thoughts that go through their head in those situations and not flipping them directly to a positive. I'm not a big pusher of positive, positive thinking because it's not always doesn't always have a place in sport, but productive. So say an athlete is in the last 200 meters of a 1500 meters. They're absolutely wrecked. Everything is burning. Their lungs are crying out. They want to stop. I'm too tired. I'm never going to make it to the finish line. They're not going to tell themselves I'm not tired. I'm fine. Instead say, I'm meant to be tired. I'm meant to feel like this. I've just ran my fastest 1300 meters I've ever ran. I know my splits are faster than I've ever ran. If I keep going and get a PB, I've trained for this feeling. I've done harder training sessions. I know I can get to the finish line. Just trust my legs you know yeah. kind of that kind of chat yeah. rather than just being like no you're fine keep going this is great i yeah. love this you know <laughs> so a lot of i would a lot of what i would do is around the self-talk okay because i find that it's usually an internal dialogue not always but i think an internal dialogue can be so detrimental Brilliant. so mm. for the younger athlete out there who's getting into elite sport like mm-hmm. is it is it good for them because you know there comes a point when why did they play sport it was fun mm-hmm. i enjoyed it mm-hmm playing with the friends, had a great time. And then there comes a point when maybe they start to recognize they're good and the coach tells them they're good. Mm-hmm. And then that pressure comes. Yeah. And then, it, you know, you come to that point in time maybe when it's not so much for fun. It's more so like, oh, it's becoming a bit more of a job. Yeah. So like, what's your opinion on that? It's a tough one. I mean, there's been loads of research to say, is elite sport good? Is elite sport bad? Like my research would say that, you know, sport is good or bad. I I would be a big believer unless an athlete is in a sport like gymnastics or swimming where they have to specialize early that they should be diverse that they should have enough experience that the chances are an athlete a young person is not going to be the best at every sport they put themselves into so they have a chance to experience failure early on that's 
what benefited me because I was useless until I was about 17. So, and my brother the same, you know, we, we kind of experienced failure. So what kept us, we weren't those kids that were winning all around us and suddenly started experiencing failure and couldn't handle it and dropped out early. We were the kids that were like, hmm, starting to get good at this. And this is something I really enjoy and suddenly I'm good and I'm getting rewards. This is cool. I'm mm. going to keep going. Yeah. It doesn't mean that if an athlete is good when they're young, that that's necessarily going to happen. But I think um, it, that's down to kind of coaches and parents' expectation. Then when a kid is very good, what does it mean? You know, that's great. But, you know, you're only 12, you know, you you still if you still want to be doing this at 22 do you want to win everything around you do you want to try maybe in athletics trying other events you know do you really need to give up hurling now to focus on rugby can you do both you know I think sometimes the kid will you know they they don't know what it means to drop out of Mm. different sports and I think that's sometimes pushed but it's very hard to say that elite sport is good or bad I think it depends on the context around them and what the support networks are kind of telling them because you know you have that kid that's be like you said they're being told all around them how good they are that's all they know yeah I'm really good and Mm -hmm. then suddenly you know they're being kind of praised for their performances rather than their effort because you know I'm coming home with loads aren't you brilliant because you have loads of gold medals instead of saying aren't you brilliant because you've trained five days this week you know and you still managed to get all your homework done I know it seems really yeah now but they're the kids are probably going to stay in it longer because they're not just being praised for the outcome. They're being praised for the also the effort and the process yeah. that goes yeah. into it. Yeah. Okay. Easier said than done, though, when you see for someone coming home with lots of medals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Never, ha- never had that problem when I was growing up. Nope. So sorry. <laughs> Me either. So coming to the end now, Jesse, before yeah. we do, I've got a couple of more philosophical type questions for you. And then David's Go got a couple of uh, quick fire questions also for you. Philosophical. Also philosophical. <laughs> okay. Um, how would you define high performance? What would be your definition of that as a term? It's used a lot these days, but what does it mean to you? You know what? I was listening to James Ellington's podcast yeah. there a few weeks ago. So you've jogged my memory completely. Yeah. Um, I was actually listening to this morning. I lie. It wasn't a couple of weeks ago. I've, I've just listened to so many. But I would completely agree what he said. It's lifestyle. You yeah. know, it's not just performing on the day. It's the decisions, all the decisions. So say setting that, that goal of getting to the Olympics, performing at the Olympics, what does that mean? And it's all those decisions, all those choices that you make. It's the mindset that you bring into your everyday. You know, yeah. anyone can, can perform on a one-off. Yeah. Not everyone, but, you know, it's the high, I think the people that are set apart as true high performance athletes are the one who dedicate every decision they make, you know, whether it's what they eat, what time they're going to bed, you know, have they, is their lifestyle high performance? I don't mean you have to be so rigid that you can't have a pizza every once in a while, but, you know, making cons- making your decisions based on what that goal that you've set yourself and not straying from that because of poor motivation or yeah. whatever. I think that would be, I think it's that whole lifestyle and that kind of culture that you create for yourself. Okay, mm. perfect. And then second question for you. Mm-hmm. It's 30 years time, you're down walking around the beaches of Waterford with a blah in the hand. Oh yeah. A cup of coffee. <laughs> and you're looking back on your career, both as a psychologist and as an athlete. What mm. would you like your legacy to be? Um, interesting question. As an athlete, I, I retired not fully happy with my career. I know there was, because of injury, unfortunately, I know there was bigger performances in me. Irish record, I don't know, but definitely a faster personal best to have that beside my name so that will always stand to me as every once in a while I just think about it be like what could have been you know had it that 2015 season if I hadn't picked up that Achilles injury could I have been a world finalist could I have been a Olympic semi-final could I have been this that and the other 
So unfortunately, my legacy from athletics personally is always what if, what could have been. I was that kind of the potential that never got seen, which is a shame. And I just had to learn to accept that because that's just sport. And that was the tough decision I made when I retired. From a psychology point of view, I would love to think that if someone talked about their career in passing and said, you know, I worked with a psychologist and I just really felt that they helped get the best out of me. Even if they didn't name me, but just to know that I worked with someone and I actually helped get, helped them achieve their potential. Whether it was like some people have ended up retiring under my support and maybe realizing that, you know, I worked with Jessie and she made me realize that the sport that I was doing was not the way for me. And now I'm doing this other career that I'm really happy in. Or is it that, you know, I was just, you know, I was able to unlock potential that maybe I didn't know I had, or I just was able to enjoy my sport more. Just that someone, I feel that that someone felt that going and working with me had kind of enriched their career for the more positive, you know. I wouldn't want to be that person to say, I was, they were the reason because then that's pressure. But yeah, just to know that I had a positive impact because I think, you know, I've become really invested with the people I work with and really kind of, you can't help, but like you're following them like they're your family. And you feel their losses. So if I thought that someone was able to look back on their career and say, yeah, she had a good impact on me. I really, you know, I really enjoyed working with her and I got really benefited. That'd be enough for me. Brilliant. Mm. And a couple of quick fire. What's the hardest thing about research? <sighs> Everything. <laughs> that too often. You know yeah. what? I actually enjoy research. I enjoy researching papers. I hate writing. Why am I doing a PhD, you might ask. <laughs> yeah, I find that it's the hardest thing. I could research for days. I Even when I used to write essays when I was younger, I would have reams and reams and reams of notes. It was actually collating it into one solid piece of work. That's the hardest bit for me. And statistics. I hate them. <laughs> Do you have a favourite book? Like psychology specific or a book you've maybe read more than once or if you know if connor said you know i wonder what jesse reads what's her go-to book oh i don't know i'm you know what it's terrible but i'm not a big reader since the phd i've actually stopped reading much because mm. i'm sick of reading papers mm-hmm. what have i gone back to see i love so you we know, will have to post you a book you'll have to give me a book yeah okay. I'm, I'm always looking for new ones and then they sit on my shelf and i'm like i can't wait to read that yeah yeah so i don't know i wouldn't be one to give an example a creed you live by? Is there anything, you, like a, a motto you live by? Um, Not really a motto, probably a bit lame, but my granny and my mum would always say, and they're big believers of, of what's for you won't pass you. And I always just think, oh, whatever. But I actually do believe it because so the, I picked up an injury at this, in April of 2017. And that same March, April, April, and the same month, the job posting for the internship at the Institute came up. Mm-hmm. And I nearly didn't take it because I was like, well, I'll probably get back to training. And I was like, realistically, it's an Achilles injury again. I'm not going to get back. I'm going to apply for the job. And I got it. Had I not applied or had I got injured a month later, I probably wouldn't be sitting here wearing this uniform. So as much as the injuries were really bad, I did step straight into a career that I really wanted that had timing not worked out. I wouldn't be here and I'd probably be still searching for a job as a psychologist now. So, you know, sometimes things do happen for a reason. What what is for you won't pass you. I don't know if I believe it fully, but this is what my granny and my mom will always say. So I'm going to hold true to that. That's her life lesson. That's it. And for me, the last one, I'd like you to just breathe the moment of an athletic accomplishment you've had. You know, you had a really storied career. Mm. It didn't finish exactly as you wanted. Mm -hmm. 
but you still were very successful. So just give us give us a touch, give us a moment that you can look back and say, well, that was a highlight of my athletic career. That yeah. was something I remember. So I suppose I talked earlier about like breakthrough years. And for me, that was 2011. You know, I could say walking in the opening ceremony of the Olympics, blah, blah, blah. Like that was obviously a massive highlight. But for me, it was the 2011 season um, and probably culminating in a, you know, a coming fifth at the European under 23 final, set a new Irish under 23 record. The year before that, I was running three-ish seconds slower, nowhere near performing at that level, was kind of looking at, okay, what am I going to do now once I finish college? And just gave it one, well, not one good year, but I, I trained really hard during college, but it was my final year of college. And suddenly I went from being someone who was looking at what tickets I could buy to go and watch in London to, I ran a B standard for the Olympics. Now suddenly my whole plan for my life could be going a completely different re- direction and realizing that like this you know when when you actually put your mind to something and like actually focus on training I could get something out of it and it was that that race was like I don't know how I feel about the idea of flow but if if I ever came across flow that was the closest I ever experienced it mm-hmm. because it was one of those races where I was completely ready. I was standing behind the blocks. I was in lane eight, so I couldn't see anyone else. And I just, my race plan just slotted into place and it just felt easy to the point that I crossed over the line and I was like, how am I not as tired? How am I, I should be more tired than this, than I was, that I was thinking I should have run faster and realized I'd set a massive PB. And yeah, that was, that's a really memorable race for me because again, I, I was kind of not on any radar and suddenly I jumped onto radar. So it was probably the last race that I had at a high level that I still wasn't on a really a big radar yet. So they were the good days. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Jesse Barr, myself and Connor and Kiran, you're here as well in the background. <laughs> We'd like to say thank you very much for coming in today. We both really enjoyed your Thanks time. Thanks for having me. We've learned a lot from you. You've got such an interesting career, so much ahead of you to look forward to. Hopefully. And um, I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you.